Hey everyone, welcome to this conversation I had with Trayden Leno, the author of this book, Ephesus, The Impossibility of Subjectivity. Trey is an Orthodox Christian theologian, a philosopher, writer, and creator of Telosbound, uh, which is a kind of a community of, of, of a YouTube channel, a Substack, and a Discord. And I think Trey is doing some really important work here because he is uh, approaching and tackling philosophers such as Hegel, Nietzsche, and even more modern thinkers like Zizek and Todd McGovern from an Orthodox Christian perspective. So he's doing some important work. Uh, and personally, if you've been following my work, you'd know that I've, I'm deeply enamored by Christianity, despite my sp spiritual struggles with my lack of belief in God. Uh, I found a great sense of... Uh, I would say meaning and and even spiritual depth in studying Trey's work and following his stuff because uh, he uh, I think approaches these thinkers through a Christian perspective by deeply engaging with these philosophers, be it Hegel, Nietzsche, Sartre, or Zizek, without sneering or, or kind of being contemptuous of them, uh, as some people who are a bit more uh, let's say religious might might do. Uh, saying all that, without further ado. Here's my conversation with uh, Trey Leno. Firstly, uh, Trey, I want to read a small excerpt from your book. This is from the foreword, in fact, by, how do I pronounce his name? Is it Chad or Chad? Chad, Chad, Chad Hag. yeah. Chad Hag, right, Chad Hag. yeah. Uh, I haven't really followed his stuff, but I, although I'm subscribed to his YouTube channel. So uh, in the foreword uh, to your book, Ephesus, he, he states, by... 2021, with the official release of the first edition of his classic Ephesus, The Impossibility of Subjectivity, uh, Lenet, is that correct, the pronunciation of your surname? Lenet. Um, right. It's actually uh, Luno. Uh, it's it's oh, French. It's French, right? But... Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Luno had already uh, accomplished something which few people ever could do in their lifetimes, all while he was still a teenager. Moreover, instead of taking the usual academic path of spending many years producing uh, secondary li literature on established trends and canonized thinkers before attempting an original <coughs> response to the mysteries of philosophy, Leno took up the Herculean challenge of, of going straight to the heavy-duty work of crafting an original system of thought. Now, here's the important point. Complete with his own... Uh, creatively generated terms such as drive ontology, perspectival hierarchy, and self-othering. In order to dare to answer uh, those most pressing questions regarding the meaning of being, truth, and above all, subjectivity, or rather, <laughs> the impossibility thereof. So I, I feel this in the foreword, this excerpt for me, and I read this book twice, really encapsulated my kind of spontaneous uh, uh, feelings towards this this work, I felt like it wasn't just, you know, what I've been doing been doing with my writing really is just reiterating philosophers uh, I've read. I guess for you and I, you know, mm -hmm. Zizek, uh, I haven't really put forth any ideas per se, but this book, in fact, you you presented some new concepts, new ideas. Uh, perhaps you'll explore them in the future more deeply, but you even disagreed with you know, in some ways, our master signifier, uh, Zizek. He said that Zizek gets these things wrong. So uh, the first question is a very general one, Trey. Uh, what made you want to write this book? Uh, and 
and what's what's next for you? I know this is normally a question that people would ask at the end of the uh, of a conversation, but what 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 do you hope to what do you hope that this book will open up for you in your in your work? Um, so basically, I, I started the book. Um, I started the book when I was probably fifteen, and um, it it was so bad because I was fifteen, you know, and um, and that it was rewritten so many times. And then Chad mentions that this is actually the second edition and I already did a first edition. I had published the first edition and then I read it like six months later and I was like, this is horrible. I hate it. So I had to do a whole, a whole other edition where I was correcting mistakes I made, um, improving sort of my writing style, um, hopefully. And, um, and so what basically, um, uh, made me first begin the book, I guess, um, well, it actually started out as a sort of apologetic for Nietzscheanism. And I was really interested in sort of building a metaphysical system of Nietzscheanism based on certain fragments of his where he seems to be more metaphysical than um, than he is in, in other passages. And actually, funny enough, it's usually within his no unpublished notes, like in the Will to Power notebook, where he gets really metaphysical and really uh, speculative with the sort of things he's saying. Um, and then in his published works, he's very anti-metaphysical. And I just found that to be an interesting contrast there with Nietzsche. And I would take the position that no one can actually escape metaphysics. So sort of the, uh, the notebooks are his uh, unconscious uh, metaphysical drive um, um, in action there. But um, so it started off as a uh, a book about Nietzsche and then probably a year or two a year maybe a year and a half into it I, I discovered Zizek so all of a sudden Zizek, Zizek became my guy instead of Nietzsche and I sort of oriented orientated the whole book around um around Zizek and his philosophy of subjectivity um so and then through Zizek I, I'd written this book where I tried to develop in my own way um Zizek's concepts um and, and really, I, I don't think I added that much. Um, and and a lot of the times, like looking back, I think the new terms I would add that that Chad mentions weren't really justified because you can find them within Zizek and within Hegel already. I just wasn't that well read um, at that point, and I'm still not that well read. But um, in any case, um, it it turned uh, from Zizek to Christianity when I really discovered Christianity. And when I realized that the fundamental problem, you could say, of, of the book, which is all of these contra contradictions in, in the subject, they're not only solvable by Christianity, but the very structure of the fallen, what I would say now is the fallen subject, is compatible with and it fits within a properly Christian ontology. And it's sort of what you would expect, given what Christianity says about um, about sin and about the fall and about communion as the essence of, of um, true being. And so basically it was a transition from Nietzsche to Zizek to Christ. And I kept aspects of all of them, I would say less so of Nietzsche and more so with, with Zizek. And, and the beautiful thing about Zizek is that upon converting to Christianity, I never had to um, renounce any of Zizek's beliefs. Well, some of them, obviously, but not like the core stuff I think he says is true. I, I think he really is getting at something pretty fundamental with the subject. 
and even in his other works that I don't really touch on with like uh, ideology and all that stuff. Um, I think he gets to true things, but I would just re, I guess, re um, contextualize them within the uh, within Orthodox Christianity. Um, and I think they find their proper place there, which um, really fulfills what Zizek is trying to get at without him even even knowing, which I believe is is the structure of sin and um, the structure of the fall. And I think Zizek really is probably the best philosopher of the of the fall. And he doesn't really shy away from that. Like he'll say stuff like like the the subject is already fallen, and like he'll talk about how Hegel talks about how the fall was necessary. I disagree with that, but I understand where that fits in, and I do think he's touching at something um, true there. And to answer your last question about where I'm going from here, um, uh, I'm working on a new book with my cousin Nate, who runs my YouTube channel uh, with me. And it's called, I think the title right now is uh, Anagogia, uh, Modern Philosophy Through New Eyes. And anagogia is in reference to the anagogical interpretation of scripture, which is in classical sort of biblical uh, hermeneutics. It's the fourth major interpretation of scripture. There's the, the liter literal, the allegorical, um, the, the anagogical, and I'm forgetting the, the other one, but um, these are all the different ways you can read scripture. And I want to do that with philosophy. So I've, I've sort of focused in on four philosophers for this book, and I'm, and I'm planning on doing other volumes of the same sort of idea here. And um, the four philosophers I'll be looking at from a Christian perspective, which I didn't do in Ephesus, right? So Ephesus was, I wrote it as an atheist, and I was stuck at the fourth chapter, and I couldn't figure out how to complete it. And then I became a Christian and that's how I completed it. So there's that radical turn from like pure Zizekianism to, to Christianity. Um, but now this is the first book I'm writing, which begins and ends with, hopefully ends with me as a Christian. And um, uh, so the four philosophers are Byung-Chul Han, number one. Uh, number two is Zizek. Number three is um, Derrida. And number four is, um, uh, who's number four? It's Oh yeah, I'm still deciding between Hegel or Nietzsche. So um, each chapter will be on one of their ideas and reading them through my understanding of Orthodox uh, Christian theology and what I've been calling the communal ontology. Um, so that's basically my plans for the immediate future. I, I Hopefully this will be out sometime mid-2024. Amazing. And do let me know, please, Trey, when I can pre-order that book because I'll be the first one. Absolutely. I, I will send you a copy. Cheers, mate. Uh, so... Uh, I got a, I got a few points. So I think the point you made about how it's very clear, especially anyone that reads this book, I probably would recommend reading it twice because it makes sense. Like what you said about how you are trying to reconcile these uh, inherent paradoxes, shortcomings, and then you 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 do reconcile them with Christianity. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, the book has a flow in that sense. Uh, it's kind of almost even dialectical in some way. Uh, and I do, I do quite like that. Um, okay, what is baptizing philosophy? Right. Um, so that's sort of the name. I it's not a very creative name, but it's the sort of name I wanted to give to a conscious effort on my behalf and other other people who want to join us in reading Christianity through um, through a thoroughly Christian perspective, um, like unapologetically Christian, but also not. Um, so polemical and so dismissive of philosophy, which I think is, you, you do find that, um, especially in the Orthodox Christian community, because there does tend to be a sort of 
um, reactionary mentality in Orthodox Christianity because we're, um, we're strongly based in tradition and all this stuff. Um, and there's positives to that, but I think one of the negatives is that people tend to dismiss modern philosophers um, and like they read like a passage of Derrida and Derrida has a lot of interesting things to say, but when you are, you've converted to Christianity and you're like a, a young person and you read Derrida and you, you don't see how any of this is coherent or could fit within your paradigm, it's just the natural tendency is to reject it because you have a sort of investment within your worldview. Um, part of your identity is usually linked to, or I would say always linked to your worldview. So what doesn't fit in, or and especially what seems to be a threat, which obviously modern, uh, mostly secular philosophy tends to be a threat to Christianity, um, it, it's usually dismissed. They want to keep it out. And I, I understand that perspective. And I think for your average person who doesn't have the luxury that I have to be able to or interest to read all of this stuff and spend a lot of time reading um, people like Derrida and Zizek, um, I can understand why you would want to just ignore them and sh um, basically figure out why they're wrong so I can move on. But for me, I'm much more interested in seeing why they're right and how they are right in relation to Christianity and um, when they're wrong, why they are wrong and where we can show that they go wrong in a way that still constructively fits within the worldview of Christianity, because um, I think if Christianity is true, it should be able to account for everything. Um, everything that even false things, it should be able to provide a proper context to it. And it's not just going to be something completely foreign that we just need to get rid of and never, never talk about. Um, and that never, that sort of approach never really works ultimately. So baptizing philosophy is sort of this, it's, it's nothing new to me. It's not like I'm the first one to ever read philosophy from a Christian perspective, but I think online, especially and in my Orthodox Christian community, um, there tends to be a lack of engagement with specifically modern philosophy. Um, obviously, because the church fathers were influenced by the ancient philosophers, there tends to be more engagement with them. But especially when it comes to modern uh, philosophy, and a lot of modern philosophy was written while the East was completely separated from the West, like Constant Constantinople had fallen, um, Russia was doing its own thing, and Orthodoxy and the West were completely alienated. It wasn't really until the 20th century that we got more of a, a dialogue between East and West. Um, and I think that in the wake of the 20th century and the ecumenical movement and sort of this real engagement that we got with Orthodoxy and the West, um, I think that we need to continue that project really of engaging with philosophy and baptizing it, not just by showing that it's wrong and should be dismissed and don't believe this or you're a heretic, but to show why they're wrong or why they're right and how they can be fit within the uh, universality of the Christian worldview, which I've come to now for about almost three years now I've been living living in. Yeah, I really like the, you said, I think in one of your videos that uh, philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. Um, mm -hmm. And in, in like a very intuitive sense that spoke to me because, uh, or like a visceral sense, let's say, because I obviously am not as well read in the history of philosophy nor Christianity as you are, but I've always felt it's it's it there, there can't be philosophy without theology or or, or specifically Christianity. It's the, it's more of the cosmological questions or questions of being, even the existential questions. They seem 
kind of imbued out of uh let's call it religion to be very general but I, in my view most christianity uh, so okay the next question uh Trey, is quite an important one for me personally because in many ways my master signifier is Jacques Lacan Hegel so where in your view does what does Jacques get wrong about Christianity mm -hmm. uh what does he get wrong about Christianity, wrong about Christianity yeah okay uh, I think fundamentally what he gets wrong and it and this is Hegel's error this all goes back to Hegel is um I consider it an error, and that's the necessity of negativity. So obviously for a Lacanian, this is anathema, right? For for Zizekian, it's anathema. Negativity is necessary. The subject is itself this pure negativity. This is what constitutes the distinguishing of uh, the subject from the, um, the the world around it and all this stuff. But um, I, I, I am... I've become increasingly convinced that the fundamental problem is this misunderstanding of the necessity of negativity. And actually, Hunter men mentioned this in your um, in your talk with him, where um, he was talking about Zizek's understanding of the crucifixion and how this is the moment where we see that God Himself has this inner negativity. God Himself is a contradictory being. God is the, the Son is divided from the Father, and. Um, I just think this is I just think this is wrong. I think that it is mistaking something that is involved with subjectivity, which is negativity, right? Like a lot a lot of our subjectivity is defined by uh, a negative uh, withdrawal from the other. And I think this is a consequence of the fall fundamentally. I don't link negativity with distinction. And I think this ultimately leads back to the Trinity, because if you want to understand reality, ultimately, you have to understand the Trinity, because we believe the creation is created in the image of God. Um, and God, and I think, I honestly believe the Trinity is the highest idea ever, um, not conceived by man, but uh, that descended from, from the Trinity himself. Um, and that is that multiplicity doesn't negate unity, and that the that god himself is a communion of three distinct persons in perfect love so you have that element of distinction and yet there is no aspect of self-withdrawal no negativity nothing like that um and i think that this is where zizek fundamentally gets it wrong and i think that the necessity of negativity is actually sort of a presupposition that because it was never really named like hegel kind of like he i guess hegel did name it but um i i think that that same presupposition is sort of is sort of uh, seen in a lot of modern philosophy. Um, and for one example that I just recently was uh, looking into and I wrote about on my Substack is Derrida's understanding of the gift. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, at some point he wrote um, he wrote a book on how gift giving is impossible because to give a gift to another person um, and you recognize that I have given a gift to, the, to another person and the other person recognizes that, oh, I have received a gift it then becomes an economic exchange and not a purely self-sacrificial act of what true giving should be. So um, so he, he even says that basically he doesn't use the word, but he says that pride is what makes gift giving impossible because he'll talk about how as soon as you give the gift and you recognize I have given the gift, you sort of, uh, you have this self-reflexivity where you're like, oh, I have given the gift. I am I am so great for doing this and I deserve something in return. Um, I'm really butchering, Derrida says it a lot more eloquently than me, but that's the gist of it. And this I think is just 
a based on the presupposition that this sort of exchange, this sort of relation between people that is defined by each person being at, at its core, this self-reflexive or self-relational um, uh, unit that can't truly be, that can't be in true communion. I, I think that this is the ontological presupposition of Derrida and of Zizek that at its core, the subject is isolated. The subject isn't always in communion and that um, sin and, the, and, and um, the isolation of people is um, ultimately um, a, a function of, of an activity of withdrawal that isn't necessary. So when it comes down to it, basically, I think that the problem with Zizek is that he conceives of negativity, which I basically equate with sin, as necessary. And Zizek equates it with sin, like Zizek's the one who writes all the time about how the fall was necessary because you move from the pure immediacy of paradise into the world defined by division and strife, but it's through division that you can recognize identities as distinct identities. One, I don't think that just from a purely biblical perspective, that's not the case because Adam was naming the animals before uh, the fall. So that ability to name and to distinguish, which in the um, you may recall in the um, preface to the sublime object, Zizek says he talks about a chair and the ability to name a chair as a chair can only occur through a sort of negativity, a breaking apart of reality. Um, but according to the Bible, that's just not the case because before negativity was introduced to the world, Adam was already naming the world. So for us, self-consciousness, the consciousness of other things, the ability to distinguish and distinction in general is not synonymous with negativity. And I think that Zizek would go the route of saying that. Rather for us, distinction is good. Otherness is good because it ultimately points to the fact that all others are meant to be united in communion. And the perfect archetype of that is the trinity of the three distinct persons in perfect, in perfect union. Okay, so let's try and break this down, Trey. Uh, firstly, this, this is kind of why I said before that Zizek, Lacan are kind of like my master signifiers because i do at the moment at least view the subject being this self-relating void this negative mm -hmm. emptiness and and it's sort of i you know I'm, I'm kind of a bit critical of this this very what's the word uh voguish uh ego psychology movement where you know right. you see a therapist and what's deep down within you what's the true truth mm -hmm. and then jack says if you really look into yourself what you find is you're full of shit you know it's just yeah Yep. And in a way, I kind of agree with him, but, but, and I think if I reconcile this with, with Christ in, in the sense of this way, with uh, the idea of communal ontology and how this self-relating negativity, this void isn't the end, I believe I'll just be a Christian. Uh, and that's where my struggle is at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. So could you, could you, could you kind of explain and maybe flesh out what you mean by the fact that this negativity isn't the end, it isn't the ultimate. That is, in fact, a or let's let's call it split subjectivity, or or mm -hmm. or in, in Christian terms, uh, the fact that we are fallen and that we're we're sinful beings. Um, mm -hmm. How does how how do we overcome that? Uh, right, so right, quite plainly. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's a very important question. Um, and I guess to begin, I would just. Uh, I, I begin by talking about what's Zizek's solution, right? Because Zizek has the subject. And you may say, well, Zizek doesn't have a solution. Um, and that the whole idea is that if you have a solution to the negativity, you're engaging in ideology or whatever. Um, but at the same time, if you read less than nothing, he talks about uh, absolute knowing. 
And mm. absolute knowing for him is the reconciliation with um, with your negativity through recognizing that it's insurpassable, right? It's it's intractable. Uh, the best, I would say the best book to really systematically talk about this is Todd McGowan's Emancipation After Hegel, where he really mm. in detail, amazing book in very precise language explains why for, for them contradiction cannot be overcome it's always obscuring it's never actually you can't actually because of course the ontological i would say presupposition of the sort of zizekian understanding is that being itself at least the being of the subject is itself the negativity so obviously you can't overcome it but zizek says that you can reconcile with it and uh you you've read a faces so uh you, you probably or remember the part where I was talking about uh, my issues with this. And my issue just fundamentally is that I don't think that this is overcoming it. And I don't think it's possible. More importantly, I don't think it's it's possible to recognize your own negativity. Um, and that's, I don't know if Zizek would move away from this idea since 2012, uh, 2012 when Less Than Nothing was published. But at least in that book, he talks about how there is a sort of absolute knowing where you can have a sort of Hegelian reconciliation. I don't think Hegel himself would have said this because it's a little too uh, cynical, I, I, for lack of a better term. It, it, it stays too much with the negativity. But for Zizek, um, that's how you reconcile it. You just recognize it. And in the book I talk about, I'm a little uh, unfamiliar. It's been a while since I've actually thought about this. But um, in the book, I sort of lay out why that is impossible from the Zizekian perspective. Actually, that is the third impossibility of subjectivity, the impossibility of absolute knowing. Fact, so- um, I interrupt you there, just because we are on sure. this, I kind of want to you know, uh, enumerate the three impossibilities of subjectivity that you laid down in the in <laughs> Ephesus. I apologize for interrupting you, but I think this is important. No, so you say the three impossibilities, and I kind of took note of them, are uh, division between form and content, so the Hegelian idea, and then the impossibility of mutual recognition or intersubjectivity. Now, I got to say, uh, this for me is perhaps the most important point you laid down. I I, I don't see how there can be, yes, as you've laid that, uh, noted, mutual recognition or intersubjectivity mm -hmm. without, mm -hmm. without some kind of communal ontology uh, or right. idea of communion. It, it just seems... Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of even absurd to me really and then the third mm -hmm. one is what you pointed out was the impossibility of absolute knowing so we can't reconcile with this negativity in any way that that is the right. inability to meet the subject's finitude um mm -hmm. but anyway i just yeah. want to point that out there keep going please yeah no thanks that's some helpful uh context and i think that when it comes to the third um impossibility uh the impossibility of absolute knowing I think the fact that there can't be a reconciliation, not this isn't like some self-evident proof or some fully justified proof for Christianity, but this is something that Christian authors have been talking about forever. C.S. Lewis was really big on this. It's the fact that like you, you sort of already have to be a Christian to see it, but I think that after seeing all like these coincidences, at least that's how I, the, the connections between what I was looking at and Christianity, that's how I came to Christianity. But um, I, I think that um, as C.S. Lewis says, the fact that humans have this desire for infinity sort of is, well, for the Christian, it's proof that we are created in the image of God. And I think that because at the core of our own subjectivities is this, and as I'll also talk about, the three impossibilities can be reverted into the three essential elements of, of subjectivity. Um, 
and for the third one, it would be the fact that we are identities over time. We do have this persistence of our of something that is us. We believe there is something that is us. Um, and I, I don't th think that that can be accounted for within Zizek's pure pure negativity understanding. But in, in, in any case, um, I think that um, ultimately the fact that we have this desire to reconcile with ourselves in some way, to figure out what it is, like what what the object A is, or what what is it that I'm searching for? What and what am I fundamentally? I think that from a Christian perspective now, I know it's not convincing to a non-Christian, but from my perspective, this just fits really neatly within the Christian worldview where you have this idea that your desire can only be fulfilled in God. Therefore, if you're out of communion with God, you um you um have this striving. And if you don't know God in any way, you don't have faith yet, then this striving can only be you can't really know what it is because what you're looking for, you don't yet have the means to know it because faith is the only means to know God, because faith is the genuine opening of yourself to the otherness of God instead of just the uh, repetition of your subjectivity in pure rationality, which is not open to God, uh, because God is truly other than our own rationality. We can't enclose the infinite God within our mind. Um, we need to open ourselves to him. Um, so that would be the, um, that's what I would say about the, the impossibility of absolute knowing. I think that the very fact that it is an impossibility from a Christian perspective, I can now look on it and see it as sort of part of this journey to god it's part of it it's very much the beginning stages where you don't know god but you still have this desire as the image of god f to reconcile with yourself and what you discover through christianity is that you reconcile with yourself antinomically through reconciling with god because god is the one who created you is the one who knows you and as paul saint paul says um, in, 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 um, in the eschaton, when God is all in all, you will be known as you are known. So just as God knows you, you will know yourself. And that for me, it, it, to get into sort of the, I guess the mechanics of it, how actually would absolute knowing occur? Um, it's all in the Christian, in the Orthodox specifically, Catholics have it, have it too. Um, but the idea of theosis of a true union with God, because within the Zizek, the Zizekian understanding, the subject is limited by its own imminence its own horizon of of itself is the totality this is why um in a speech i even quoted in the book because i love it so much uh zizek has this speech where he talks about um he talks he was talking about repetition and talking about um subjectivity and a guy was like well what if an alien just came down from the earth wouldn't that be something truly new that wouldn't just be a repetition of your subjectivity and zizek says well even if an alien came this would not be the radical type of break from subject the repetition of the self-enclosure of the subjectivity that i'm talking about because ultimately what i'm talking about is the fact of another self-consciousness the fact of another subjective world and another subjectivity that experiences itself as equally absolute equally singular as myself this this is truly knowing that other that is what for Zizek is impossible. So he says that uh, the most radically new thing would not to be not to be uh, to discover an alien, but to say fuck it, another self consciousness. So you can't have this moment of just fuck it, another self consciousness. You're out there for Zizek. You can't do that. Just that's a structural, um, essential aspect of what it means to be a subject within um, within Zizek's Zizek's framework. So I've kind of gone all over the place, but um, I, I hope that answers your your question in some way. No, it certainly does. Because for me, I would say uh, on the point of 
recognizing another subject because as you pointed out our subjectivity is absolute we really can't mm-hmm. step outside of our subjectivity in that sense and for me at the moment I think the only way for that mutual recognition is love and I mean that more in the, in the sense of eros although mm-hmm. I feel eventually and and who knows what the future holds I might become a Christian and just mm-hmm. find that in God because eros itself I I don't want to get into it, but I think there are some uh, there are some drawbacks in kind of divinizing another human being in that sense, so to speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Trace. So on the note, um, now I want to ask this 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 question: How how can I uh, formulate this? So the the Lacano uh, Jacquin notion of the big other doesn't exist. This this there is no meta language. However, however, may you. Mm-hmm. Put it so obviously in uh Jacques talks about this in many of his works uh probably the most famous one is in pervert's guide to ideology he talks about mm-hmm. the crucifixion and where christ goes Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, father father right why have that forsaken me and for him this is uh it's kind of a pauline uh interpretation of christianity i think where this is where the absolute itself fa- sees the void of being and, and kind of sees that mm-hmm. The big other doesn't exist, so to speak. The contrast between Judaism and Christianity is the contrast between anxiety and love. The idea is that the Jewish God is the God of the abyss of the other's desire. Terrible things happen. God is in charge, but we do not know what the big other God wants from us, what is the divine desire. To designate this traumatic experience, Lacan used the Italian phrase, che vuoi? What do you want? This terrifying question, but what do you want from me? The idea is that Judaism persists in this anxiety, like God remains this enigmatic, terrifying other. And then Christianity resolves the tension through love. By sacrificing his son, God demonstrates that he loves us. So it's a kind of an imaginary, sentimental even, resolution of a situation of radical anxiety. If this were to be the case, then Christianity would have been kind of ideological reversal or pacification of the deep, much more shattering Jewish insight. But I think one can read the Christian gesture in a much more radical way. This is what the sequence of crucifixion in Scorsese's film shows us. What dies on the cross is precisely this guarantee of the big other. The message of Christianity is here radically atheist. It's the death of Christ is not any kind of redemption or commercial affair in the sense of Christ suffers to pay for our sins, pay to whom, for what, and so on. 
it's simply the disintegration of the God which guarantees the meaning of our lives. And that's the meaning of that famous phrase, Eli Eli Lama Sabaktami, Father, why have you forsaken me? Just before Christ's death, we get what in psychoanalytic terms we call subjective destitution. Stepping out totally of the domain of symbolic identification. Cancelling or suspending the entire field of symbolic authority, the entire field of the big other. Of course, we cannot know what God wants from us because there is no God. This is the Jesus Christ who says, among other things, I bring sword, not peace. If you don't hate your father, your mother, you are not my follower. Of course, this doesn't mean that you should actively hate or kill your parents. I think that Family relations stand here for hierarchic social relations. The message of Christ is, I'm dying, but my death itself is good news. It means you are alone, left to your freedom, be in the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, which is just the community of believers. It's wrong to think that the second coming will be that Christ as a figure will return somehow. Christ is already here when believers form an emancipatory collective. This is why I claim that the only way really to be an atheist is to go through Christianity. Christianity is much more atheist than the usual atheism, which can claim there is no God and so on, but nonetheless it retains a certain trust into the big other. This big other can be called natural necessity, evolution, or whatever. We humans are nonetheless reduced to a position within a harmonious whole of evolution, whatever. But the difficult thing to accept is, again, that there is no big other, no point of reference which guarantees uh, and yeah. as you said, Hunter disagrees with this reading of uh, the crucifixion um, and that that line by Christ. But in general, uh, what would your response to be to this Lacan or Jijikian notion that the big other doesn't exist? Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that, because if you see what Lacan and Zizek say about the big other, part of what makes it the big other is the fact that it's fundamentally unknowable. And it's the fact that the big other is unknowable is why the big other doesn't exist. It's just a, it's it, to put it in more, I guess, classical language. Um, it's, it's, a, you're positing it in your mind and it's pot in within sort of the, the, the symbolic space, right? It's, it's posited not in individual minds. I know Zizek's quite clear about that. It's not just a figment of your imagination. It's the figment of the, collective uh the, the symbolic, symbolic order right symbolic yeah. order. yeah so 
So I think if you're defining the big other as this fundamentally the thing which cannot be known and it is not known because it doesn't exist and it sort of just unconsciously um, affects us in um, in in all these ways. Well, that's that's not God. So I don't really have a problem with that. I actually think that um, I I haven't really worked this out yet, but I think that the big other could find because I think it's true. It's obviously true. I mean, if, once I really, I remember the moment I actually got what Zizek was talking about. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. I think it was using the example of, of Santa Claus, which he loves to use of the fact that um, um, in an, in a relationship between parents and children, it's not necessary for both parents or, or both the parents and the children to believe in Santa. They just need to act as if it exists. And yeah. this activity constitutes or, or creates, posits the, um, the symbolic fiction of Santa Claus and Santa Claus would be sort of an analogy of the big other here, because while Santa does not exist, he none, nonetheless structures our subjectivity. So um, I do think there is a very key place for the big other. Again, I haven't figured it out, so I don't want to say too much on it, but um, I don't agree that we can just say, oh, well, God is the big other, because clearly the way Zizek and, and Lacan describe the big other um, this is not our our God. So I agree. Yeah, the big other doesn't exist. And yet the concept is quite valuable. And um, maybe someone maybe Hunter, honestly, because he's the Lacanian guy, he can do sort of the work, uh, maybe once he's more familiar with Orthodox uh, theology, because he's only been Orthodox for what, a month or two. So uh, I, I think I might suggest that to him uh, to, to look into that, because there definitely is something there. Yeah, in fact, uh, I'm currently reading, rereading Hunter's paper on uh, Christian universalism, and mm -hmm. and I kind of want to have a almost like an exegetical reading with him uh, later on on the pod uh, mm -hmm. to 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 tackle that question of the big other not existing. And of course, you're right because Zizek is very clear about this. He never means the big other for him. The signifier isn't just God. It, it's the state. It's science. It's yeah, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> capitalism, whatever you may call it, any kind of ordering principle in, let's say, in our material reality, uh, or, or sorry, our symbolic reality, but no, that was a mistake. Uh, but then, although, uh, Trey, I feel, given Zizek's Christian atheism, that he he is quite clear in, in his theology that he, he, he truly does kind of view... So when he states the big R that doesn't exist, he views that that also for him is good in some sense, in, in, the, in the sense that uh, this is where I go back to the the, the crucifixion of, of Christ um, mm -hmm. confronting uh, the void of, of being, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then he, of course, he brings up Chesterton uh, in Orthodoxy. Chesterton talks about how uh, it's only the Christian God that knows what it's like to be an atheist. And for me, that's a right. profound statement, a profound insight, a theological insight. So, but Correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that for you, you don't equate the big other to God. No, no, I wouldn't. I understand. Okay, that now we'll 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 go to Orthodox Christianity, and this is really interesting because uh, I, if I if I am a Christian, I probably would be an Orthodox Christian <laughs> uh, because I have a few qualms with the Protestantism, especially kind of the contemporary mm -hmm. version of it. Um, so. Sure. Very, uh, I know this is a very loaded question, uh, Trey, but uh, why Orthodox Christianity in particular? Um, yeah, that is that is a good question. Yeah, I um, apologize, but I mean, we could break it down a bit no, more. No, it's fine. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a. Uh, I think that I think that for a lot of people, and maybe maybe me, I don't remember feeling this way, but for a lot of especially young men, I would say coming into orthodoxy, and we get a lot of them nowadays. Um, I, I think sort of the appeal is sort of this exotic element to it, something really new. And in the West, where I a lot of people um, are craving something traditional some link to your your ancestors and to um and and sort of i i don't i don't interpret this in like a um uh, an ethnic sense or anything but more in a universal history sense that jonathan Pajot will talk about where you have an understanding every people at least ancient people i think really moderners are the only ones who didn't have this they had a sort of um or we we have some narrative of this but it's sort of an empty idea of progress for the sake of progress you have that sort of self-referential idea yeah, where yeah. um yeah so but i think that the narrative of the ancient worlds always they always had creation myths and they always always had genealogies in their in um maybe not as exact in the bible but they had myth uh, people they trace themselves back to whether mythical or real and this idea of being grounded within a place uh, obviously heidegger will talk a lot about this of, of um of having a connection to your history, having a connection to the place you live in. This is something that I think any group uh, needs to have. Um, this is something Americans really are losing now. This is something uh, I think a lot of Europeans are losing, a lot of Canadians are losing. And I think that it's not just because, I think that's just because these countries are where sort of this empty neoliberalism that we that has taken over the world really begun and is developed. Um, and I think it will affect any culture that really is um, infected by it. Byung Shohan is really good on sort of critiquing neoliberalism here. Um, and I think that, um, so the search ultimately for a lot of people is tradition. And I think the most important part of tradition is the historical con uh, consciousness of your history your place within it and your place within the world. And I think orthodoxy provides that for a lot of people. Um, and Christianity in general provides that because what are you? You are the soldiers of Christ. You're going out into to the world. You're preaching the gospel. You are living in a Christian way. I think a lot of the, uh, in maybe Protestantism, American Protestantism in general, there's a overemphasis, overemphasis on the actual preaching with words and less of the preaching of your own behavior, uh, comportment of yourself to Christ. But um, orthodox. So sorry to answer your question. I wanted to, um, I wanted to find some sort of tradition, some some explanation for who I am, why I am, why the world is the way it is. Orthodoxy provided that, and um, but fundamentally, um, more important than that was simply the theology. My conversion to Christianity and to orthodoxy was intellectual at the beginning, purely. I have distinct memories of praying because you're supposed to pray, you know, I'm a Christian now, so I guess I'm gonna pray. Um, and I didn't believe I was praying to anyone. I didn't feel any personal connection. I didn't believe there was a God out there, but I continued to do it because I was given some advice to do that, do that but I was thoroughly convinced intellectually. And there wasn't really anything that was gonna really shake my, my faith at that point because it was a very radical, quick turn that just, everything there was like moments where like everything i had been working on for three four years all just came together an answer was provided to everything in christ and in uh, the trinity um so that's really why i converted to christianity i i sort of like catholicism was an option and then i just looked into the it wasn't anything crazy i just saw that i don't agree with the roman catholic understanding of the papacy and sort certain theological doctrines. And with Protestantism, there's a whole host of issues which I, I didn't find um, appealing. So 
orthodoxy is where I, I converted to, uh, I decided to convert to. And um, I have a great parish and I love it there. And um, uh, so, yeah, so basically I think that for a lot of people uh, that are coming into Christianity, it's for less intellectual reasons than me, but, and, and by intellectual, I just mean purely rational. But for me, it was like purely rational. I have, I have my philosophy and my philosophy makes a lot more sense in the context of Christianity. So I'm going to be a Christian now. And then the faith came um, months later, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Two points straight. I mean, the first one is, I think I'm at the, I'm at the place where you were, uh, because I'm, because I, I, I don't believe in God, or I guess I'm agnostic about God. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever I've tried to pray, I just, I just felt silly. I was like, what am I doing here? Right. Even though every time I've read, uh, you know, Maximus the Confessor, or even like a, someone like Chesterton, I felt this mm -hmm. deep, almost existential, I don't know, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, there's so much truth in this that I can't even, yeah. uh, I can't even articulate really. Uh, but then when mm -hmm. I try to, mm -hmm. let's say, act out a, a ritual of like prayer, I feel silly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't know what to, what to make of that. Um, but here's where I'm kind of going to try and challenge you a little bit, Trey. Um, you know, mm -hmm. pe people like Jordan Peterson, they very commonly say that, and you, you're right, and Byung Han, probably after Jacek my uh, and Hegel, my uh, second, th second, third favorite philosopher, he's am amazing, uh, especially mm -hmm. his cultural analysis is on point. Uh, I would even say perhaps better than Zizek. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and he's right, you're right. Neoliberalism is a mess. We are in this empty, uh, almost Sisyphean pr progress version of it's a void we live in um and 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 the west as you say is going through that i would even argue now it's a global phenomenon it's not really a western phenomenon anymore uh because mm -hmm. neoliberalism capitalism in that sense is universal <laughs> unfortunately um so okay uh, sorry to get back to my, my my question you know jordan peterson talks about how we need myths we need stories we need frameworks but he used the words myth a, a bit more and you even mentioned heidegger right so but the problem is myths, you know, the, the, Zizek says this plainly. He says the greatest storyteller ever was Hitler. Hitler was a good storyteller in some sense. Like he, he gave uh, Germany at the time a myth, the, the Jew, whatever you may call it, the, the scapegoat. But how do we know? How do we know that whatever the myths that we subscribe to aren't just pure ideology, uh, are right. in fact something that's fascistic or something evil? And how do we know that it's it's something that's true and beautiful and let's say even even Christly? Right, right. Yeah, um, I think the answer to that is already implied by your question where you were talking about the really, uh, according to Todd McGowan, the fundamental problem with Nazism is that it wasn't only a evil or destructive ideology, but it was self-destructive because it based its identity in the hatred of the other, uh, and that was Jews and Bolsheviks, basically. Um, and it, nonetheless, if you hate the other and you try to destroy the other, you have now undermined your identity because your identity was based in the in the scapegoat. And that sort of cycle will always repeat. And the person who described that 
by far the the most originally and and the best is Rene Girard, where he talks about the the scapegoat mechanism and the how th th there's always violence in communities. Um, and he was a Christian, so I think he would say because of the fall, because of the fall, there's always violence in communities. There's always division, and there needs to be a release of this violent energy, and that has always taken the place of the scapegoat. But so so what would be the difference between Christ and these? Um, these other sort of ideologies where very often, if not always, there is some form of scapegoat where the problems, where the negativity of the identity are pushed out onto. Um, well, the, the, the answer in Christianity is self-sacrifice. No longer are you sacrificing the other and basing your identity in the sacrifice of the other, but you're basing your identity in the self-sacrifice of Christ, which you, you follow and you become like Christ through doing what Christ did. Like, in, in the Bible, you have languages, uh, language like the image of God and the likeness of God, and people don't know what it is. But I, I think that in a lot of cases, it's just really simple. Like, how do you be like God? Well, God became flesh, and what did he do? He sacrificed himself for the sake of others and for the sake of his father, right? Like, he was doing the will of his father. So right there, Christ, the perfect man, you have everything you need to know for your worldview. It's that in order to overcome all of the, the divisions that inevitably occur between groups um, and, and is structurally necessitated um, by um, forms of ideology that hate the other because ultimately it leads to a destruction of the very identity and then the collapse of, of, the, whole, of the whole movement or the whole uh, group. Um, how to overcome that is through self-sacrifice. Instead of competing with your neighbor, which ends in violence, which necessitates the um, the, the scapegoat as the one in whom the violence on whom the violence and the blame is cast you have self-sacrifice and you you blame yourself right you blame your own sins you recognize your own sins um not in like a purely pietistic way that nietzsche would critique i think validly in many cases right but it's more of like an ontological understanding of what sin is and what life is and what community is and only on this basis only on the the recognition of our own um to use traditional language sinless uh sinfulness uh can we have a genuine movement that will last and not just fall and it will last because it's it, it corresponds with what eternity itself is which is the, tr the trinity where all three persons are eternally eternally self-sacrificing themselves for the sake of the other so um and, and we see this in the history of the church we have um Peter, the first of the apostles, well, he he denies Christ, and then he turns back towards Christ, and he is um and and he is the 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 first uh, the head of the apostles, right? Um, so so this recognition of our own imperfection and our own sinlessness is the basis of any true community and any and, and, and the the only way you cannot fall into division and strife because it's how you escape sort of the, the the scapegoat mechanism and how you stop blaming the other but you recognize and you accept the other as how they are however flawed they are because you've already recognized that you yourself are just as as flawed and that sort that original moment of the self-sacrifice of humility that Humility is the basis of, I would say, the basis of all true community and all true relationships. Wherever there's egos, it's going to eventually collapse and 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 uh, not work out simply by the very ontological nature of what it means to be existing in an egoistic manner. You're always subsuming the other, making the other lesser than you, which 
ultimately obscures the essentially communal nature of all being itself. So to act in a simple way is it, within the communal ontology is to act in an in a ontologically um, lower mode of being, and it ultimately is leading to a, a pure isolation, which in Christianity we call hell. And I'm not taking any position here on whether how you want to understand hell, but hell does have a place in Christianity. And especially with the modern theologians, you get this more explicitly, hell is the abyss of self-isolation. And that's why I would link uh, the hell to Zizek's subject, um, but not to get too off topic. Yeah. Yeah, you you do in in the in the last chapter. I think you do touch on that. Um, so, uh, if pray, if I could ask you this, let's let's try to leave aside. I, I want to um kind of flesh out a bit more about the idea of self sacrifice coming from my Lacanian perspective. But uh, if okay. I want to like let's let's say you're talking to um someone who is unfortunately fallen into some kind of neo fascist ideology, QAnon or some I don't know white supremacist supremacist group or, or whatever these, these radical groups that are coming up in, in the West, mostly because of the void that we have in, in our culture. Um, what would your response as a Christian be to, let's say, a, a neo-Nazi or a, a QAnon supporter that is, in fact, looking for an, a scapegoat? Or even uh, more of a conservative type, someone who blames everything on woke people or, or whatnot. What would your response be to them as a Christian? Right. Well, I think firstly, it wouldn't be a, um, if, especially if we were talking in private, it wouldn't, wouldn't be like a moral personal denouncement of the person. I, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't even, sorry to interrupt you, Trey. I don't, I don't even mean like a moralistic sense, but just right. uh, as a friend, as a friend. In, in a, in okay. A, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think I would ultimately, yeah, that, that's a, that's a tough question. I think ultimately I would try to basically, I would just basically try to present the Christian worldview of things because I think that intuitively most people who, especially I, I've found that a lot of people who have a problem with Western society, whether that be radical um, rightists or radical leftists, there tend to be um, because of this, this conscious, um, uh, this conscious feeling of alienation from the dominant culture, there is a lot of opportunity and a lot of open space to, to, to use that language to sort of present the Christian ideas because the Christian ideas do go against uh, modern neoliberal ideology, whatever you want to call it. So I would, that's really how I try to, how I try to engage with athe atheists as well. I'm very not like personally my disposition is not to do apologetics as in like oh, well look at this argument look at this argument there has to be a god but more so to just present my worldview present where I, where all this fits in and i think that a lot of the grievances that you'll find that uh certain people have which leads to extreme uh ideologies like for example i think that a lot of of uh of far right ideologies are especially now the modern ideas are based in sort of the fact that we live in a digitalized culture where there are there is no essential connection to your land there is no sense of of a distinct people and um i think that when you lose this in the west and you just get atomized individuals ultimately it leads to the these sort of extremisms which recognize that 
well, I'm not just an individual, I'm a, a white person, or I'm, I'm this or whatever, which I do think are valid categories, uh, but they need to be placed within a proper hierarchy. And I think Christianity has that because you cannot put your race above the uh, above human human being in general, the human person, that's a more primary category, I think that can be philosophically justified too, than your own race, which you just happen to identify with at this certain period of time, in this certain civilization. And I think that pro providing the Christian worldview and showing where we have our values and in, in by implication what is acceptable belief and what isn't this i have found from my own experience going into the faith and from other people this is the most effective way to get people really thinking about christianity because instead of just attacking their beliefs it sort of just shows okay well i'm not going to attack you but this is what i believe in you can accept it or not i'm not here to evangelize but um but yeah so that would be my approach to just in general people who we tend to disagree with me yeah and pretty honestly i think you are doing exactly that because like for me I'm, I'm not an orthodox christian but uh just i could see just reading your work uh watching your videos all of that i could see you aren't trying to moralize at all uh you're just sharing your point of view and that is in mm -hmm. many ways enough because you're embodying in many ways what you're trying to, you're, you're, you're moralizing in, in, in this, but by not moralizing, if that makes sense, paradoxically. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to talk about ontological incompleteness, but before we get that, get there, I just want to touch on the idea of self-sacrifice. And this here again is probably where I'm quite Nietzsche. And I, I, one of my, uh, oh, sorry. I just want to mention one more thing. Um, I, I apologize. You, you, you do make a really good point that for our culture, the Christian Christian message is, is is radical. It's revolutionary, and this is something a little existential project that I've set to myself is I want to bring the the message of Christian love to the world of self help and new age, this kind of narcissistic mm -hmm. divine, you know, uh, um God nonsense. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I, what I've been trying to do is to in fact show uh, how radical the the message of Christ could be in in a in a in a vain narcissistic self-help uh in a culture of self-help um and and mm -hmm. especially the idea of grace uh how how beautiful the idea of grace is uh when it comes when you put into love and and all of that but uh my my, my question about self-sacrifice and this is where i i'm so trying to make sense of this idea so if we could talk in lacanian jargon Right, so the idea of Jewish sons is this. It's this. It's not the reason Lacanian interpreters or translators don't translate it is because Jewish sons isn't just pleasure. It's some kind of almost like a traumatic kind of thing, this kind of traumatic pleasure that that it's it's an almost an act of violence imposed on our on our subjectivity, and we get Jewish sons out of that. So it it manifests in different ways. It could manifest in good ways and bad ways. It could manifest. As Todd McGavin points out, uh, as racism or as sexism, or it could manifest even in in good ways as perhaps some kind of activism or some kind of social justice, some kind of course like that. Um, but with the idea of self sacrifice, I've always seen this. Judex says, "Never fall in love with your own suffering," uh, or like the Nietzschean in his genealogy of morals, where he he uh, right. sort right. of. Uh, critiques or, or uh, is critical of the ascetic who kind of falls in love yep. there with their asceticism. So how does that kind of where you get kind of this Jewish zones from imposing some kind of pain onto yourself, 
how does that differ from let's say authentic or the the, the kind of the true self-sacrifice of christianity yeah that's very very crucial i think and um i think especially i think as an orthodox christian you can sort of uh you can look back at the type of stuff that led to nietzsche's critique and you can uh, because that wasn't really involved in the church, you can have more a more objective look at it. And for example, like self-flagellation, this isn't present in Orthodox Christianity. Now, what you can find is examples of certain monks who have like a stick and they will hit themselves on the leg with it when they're falling asleep so they can keep praying. This isn't pain for the sake of pain. It's not like, for example, something you only find after the schism. And I, I still really haven't figured out what this is. Is it fake? Is it from God or is it demonic? <laughs> uh, those are really the three options, I think. And it's the stigmata, which you have with the first example is St. Francis of Assisi. Now, I, I love him. I think he's a, he was a genuinely holy man, I, I believe. But this this issue of the stigmata, I'm very much undecided on. Um, and then you have a man like Padre Pio, who was seems to be a very uh, truly a Christian man, and he also had them. And this is only something you find in the post-East-West schism Western world, Western Christianity. You only find this idea that to become like, like when Paul talks about, I bear the marks of, of I bear the marks of something in my body. Um, I believe it's I bear the marks of, of Christ in my body. Um, they took that in a very literal sense to mean Paul is talking about the physical um, the physical marks he had received through being beaten, all this stuff, and that there is something intrinsically good about pain. That is false. Pain was introduced into the world by the fall. That like th There is no pain in, in Eden, but pain is introduced through Adam and Eve's Eve's sin, and it's part of the curse. And in the very curse, right, there is the promise of uh, who we find out will be the Messiah, who will... Uh, who will overcome the curse he will abolish the curse um and and therefore he will abolish pain you get that in revelation too right all all um tears will be wiped wiped away so um i think that the idea that pain in itself is a good is something that is consistently rejected in in orthodox christianity and i think especially modern roman catholicism it especially has moved away from the types of strange spirituality you would find at certain points in medieval um, um, Western Christianity. Um, but this is really the fundamental point is that pain in itself is nothing. Pain in itself is absolutely nothing. And pain in itself is not inherently self-sacrificial. And this is, I think, where Nietzsche's critique very much can apply here because you can get the highest sense of pridefulness, of arrogance, of this feeling of, oh, I am so uh, zealous for God because I've whipped myself this many times, or if I, I've done this to me. But that's it, it, the very fact that you're having that thought shows the perversity of it, and it shows that you're not truly doing what you're meant to do. There's, a, there's always a hierarchy of, of values, ultimately. And I don't even think pain is on that on the scale at all, because pain isn't a good in itself. It's a bad. It's a curse. But Christ turns all curses into blessings. This is what we see fundamentally, like uh, archetypically on the cross. But you see it all throughout the scriptures, right? Uh, Pharaoh hardens his heart to Moses and the Israelites. He kicks them out. He kicks them out. He oppresses them. But it's this very, um, it's this very um, evil act of the Pharaoh that harms the Israelites that God uses to bring the Israelites into the promised land, right? So this that you can find that pattern all throughout scripture of God through his foreknowledge and through his predestination, his providence, turning a curse into, into good. So 
pain is part of the Christian life because of our fall and because sin always leads to some sort of pain, um, um, at least spiritually, because it's sin is tearing yourself away from the only good that you truly find your rest in, your true end. And you need to repent of that. And that does involve pain. And it often involves uh, very concrete experiences of, of shame. And you have to be able to um, to get around that without falling into or overcome that without following into the perversity of pain for the sake of pain. The idea that just by punishing myself, that means I am I am truly achieving humility or I am truly making myself worthy of communion with God when it really isn't. So this is a warning you'll find all throughout the monastic writings of the, of the church. Um, it's this idea that pain isn't, even though you will experience pain, this is a cautionary thing. It's not something, it's, they're not saying you should search out pain, um, which it does have a complicated relationship to asceticism, but even asceticism itself, all of the works that the ascetics do is not for the sake of the works themselves is because they know that the works are purifying them to experience god so the experience of god is the highest highest idea here and pain in itself is not something good but pain for the sake of pain is fundamentally perverse and it is a cautionary um it is something we need to, to be cautious of and i think nietzsche was right in sort of seeing that in the christians of his time and even before and, and critiquing that yeah, and I would I would say you put it well, Law. Nietzsche would make make a similar comment about a contemporary religion of uh, New Age and self help. Where yes, they I know they have like the whole self worship, self divinity angle to it too. But then if you look at a lot of these more let's call it uh, masculine version of it with like the the David Goggins or who's gonna carry the boats, you know, and the where they, yeah. they it's this like and again. I don't think you and I are saying here that you shouldn't, uh, you know, uh, and get take care of your health or run or work out of that. That's fine, totally fine. Uh, those are those are all good things. But the problem is, it's it's clear that there is this sense of Jewish zones that get out of putting themselves through suffering, and it kind of it comes to a point where it becomes a kind of self-flagellation, where it's just like vain, and especially with social media, you you kind of you kind of show how much of pain can i bear or, or with things like even with things like fasting for instance where people are like oh mm -hmm. i didn't eat for five days look at how much of pain i can bear and, and for me there's something really vain about that uh and yeah. and for me that's not christianity i i don't see i don't see that perhaps is a a caricatured version of i don't know buddhism or whatever but that's not christianity where you just impose pain on yourself um yeah yeah um okay uh I've got to be uh, cognizant of our time. We've got we've still got about yeah, we've still got about twenty five minutes left. That's 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 good. So okay. I want to really do really want to talk to you about Protestantism. Uh, but before we get there, um, what are your views on the 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 idea of ontological incompleteness? So Jacques is quite big on this. He wrote in less than nothing, and of course, uh, even even I, I would say kind of the contemporary Jacques inspired. German idealist movement. They talk a lot about mm -hmm. uh, ontological incompleteness. Uh, so I, ha I have two questions. What are your general views on the idea, the concept? Also, secondly, and this is something I'm deeply struggling with, do you think reality can exist without a subject? Mm. Okay. Uh, yeah. They are related. So please go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so for the first question, um, 
I, I fully affirm it because reality, reality for ortho, speaking from an Orthodox Christian perspective, reality is complete when it's united with God. We believe that the whole point of God's plan, like his whole divine plan is fundamentally the communion of, of him in the world is uniting himself with the world. And this is what we call the eschaton. This is what we believe will occur with what's often called the second coming of Christ. It's the full revelation of Christ. Right now we're in the millennium. The millennium is the era in which Christ rules. It's where he's working through the church to subject the world to him. But um, the eschaton is when Christ is fully revealed and the Holy Spirit indwells every single inch of creation. And um, my my very good friend, Seraphim Hamilton, who is a fantastic YouTuber and honestly the best biblical, one of the best biblical scholars in the world right now. Um, and he he talks about he talks about this and he talks about like he relates it to quantum mechanics just as Zizek does with this sort of ontological incompleteness and he just interprets it as proof that we are living in uh, a sort of an incomplete reality and uh c.s lewis also talks about this he talks about how um and yeah so seraphim has a video seraphim hamilton he has a video on lewis's idea of how the world is in a sort of dream state right now and one day we'll wake up and i think yeah the video is called when the world wakes up by Seraphim Hamilton, I suggest everyone watch it because he talks about this fact that the world is in a state of incompletion. So I fully agree with Zizek there. Um, I'm not sure if I'm fully convinced of his interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, I sort of, I even if there's some validity to it, I sort of see it as a, analogous to Descartes' uh, pineal gland. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with yeah. Descartes' idea that there's like a gland where the physical, my philosophical speculations are physically sort of embodied in the pineal gland, which uh, unites um, uh, mind and matter. Um, and then with Zizek, you sort of have this understanding of quantum mechanics where you have, oh, here's the objective thing in just empirical reality, which um, comports with my my speculations on on subjectivity. Um, uh, so I, I just had that thought about the connection there and sort of how, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about Zizek's interpretation of quantum mechanics. There are many critics of him. Um, an example of Ad is Adrian Johnson, who is a Zizekian for the most part. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually yeah, so reading I, I his do book on uh, Adrian Johnson's book on new German idealism, and he points okay. it out that it probably is not, it's too early for Zizek to make that leap with quantum mechanics, but sorry to interrupt yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, just wanted to point that out. No Go worries. Yeah. 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 So I'm not sure how convinced I am about that, but I mean, my friend Seraphim says that there is, this does point towards this Christian idea of an incompletion before the eschaton. And I think it, I think it does. So, um, um, but actually one other thing I'll say about that is, is the consequence of imminence is incompletion. A purely immanistic uh, ontology always leads to the an ontological incompletion. And that's because um, if you have reality here, right, and you're in reality, the only way you could ever constitute reality as complete would be to step outside of it. Now, the for me, I talked about this earlier, um, the way you, for Orthodox Christianity this occurs is through union with God, right? True divinized, true deification, uh, theosis, where you truly enter into God. So you remain yourself, you, like St. Maximus will talk about, you remain human by nature, but by grace you become God. So this is sort of, I think, if you place this within what Zizek talks about uh, with ontological incompleteness, it really makes sense because 
yeah, the reality is is incomplete by definition when you're stuck within its the imminence of of the world and more specifically your own subjectivity. There's always an incompletion there, and um, and so so I do I, I do agree with that. Um, then your question, can you remind me of your yeah, second, the second question? one was kind of like a follow up to that, uh, which was can reality exist without a subject? Ah, um, no, I don't think so. I I haven't looked too deeply into it um uh like it's a very i know central question in philosophy but i i haven't read uh what's his name berkeley or or anyone i who who really posited these ideas but i do think it's true and and just from my 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 um very limited understanding of quantum mechanics uh, with the the probability uh the wave function and how it collapses with an observer i think this is very clear empirical evidence of sort of this idea but i wouldn't base it all on um empirical reality but i do think that um um i do think i do agree with the classical understandings of the ne necessity of god god's sustaining of the world now if you if you want to call that his subjectivity i, I guess you can uh but i would i would see it more as a not just a sort of very uh spiritualistic understanding of what the observer just creates the reality and, and it's just like mind understood as purely observational but rather it's an ontological union with the divine mind it's through god sustaining in his mind reality um freely that reality it exists at all so god is the first cause the first the ground of all existence so if, if that's how you want to understand the dependence of reality on the mind i would fully affirm that in terms of the more specifically western philosophical questions of that berkeley raised where um and, and like solipsists will raise as well sort of uh, uh the necessity of the mind um i haven't looked enough into that to really comment on that specifically but in terms of the fundamental idea that reality doesn't just exist here as a given and and has no relation to something above it which contains all of reality in its in, in a way while preserving its its uniqueness um um i do i do affirm that and that's just classical monotheism basically well there's even with the point that berkeley makes the the idealist that you know he has this uh example i read this a long time ago uh it's it's so he talks about you know if uh if a, if a tree falls and there's no one to 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 hear the tree falling or see the tree falling to experience a subject to experience the tree falling did that tree really fall uh and and he says, well, we would argue no, but but then he would, but the the point he would make is no, there still is one mind, and that's God. God will still be there, right. giving right. gravity its its beingness, so to speak. But but even mm -hmm. I mean, the the thing is, even like a like a spontaneous kind of re reaction I have to 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 this question is, how can we if if you think of just any kind of concept category, even if you try to conceptualize can we uh you know view view reality uh eterno modo to use a term i learned from Kierkegaard that is kind of from god's point of view uh but mm -hmm. even that conceptualization requires a subject i just don't understand how anything time atoms whatever concepts right. whatever phenomena we describe in this world or in in this universe how they can exist uh or, or, or have its let's say beingness without a subject it, it seems nonsensical to me and then and perhaps that's uh I, and i don't think that's a solipsistic claim because it's not that we're we're saying oh we give 
reality it's it's yeah. being, we're kind of talking about a, a meta subject so to speak or a transcendent mm-hmm. subject in, in that sense um yeah so uh, the other question um trey would be i want to discuss uh he is also a theologian that's influenced me a lot well i would say uh Kierkegaard, Tillich, paul Tillich, Soren Kierkegaard, and then more more recently peter rollins in the past few years uh this kind of i would call it the ap- apophatic death of god theology um so so peter rollins wrote wrote, wrote a few books he wrote how not to speak of god and he he views in many ways god the way that Zizek does as being this uh as being the signifier or what we call it to, so for him god is this void of reality this this in some sense incompleteness um, I don't know if you're too familiar with Peter, Peter Rollins' work, but just in general, uh, how do you respond to a lot of these theologians who 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 write on yeah who write on apophatic theology and the uh, death of God theology? Um, do you mean Peter Rollins and like he would be one example of this? I I would say he's one example, and then the uh, John Caputo, who's uh, another mm. uh, like a postmodern theologian. Uh, right. and, and they view a lot of, sorry, that was, that question wasn't clear. I apologize. They view a lot of, um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to like see if I could succinctly articulate what their view of God is, but at a very elementary level, they, they, they don't see God as absolute or being, having this completeness. Mm. They see, so to use your book, this right. impossibility of subjectivity, they see they they transpose that onto God Himself. They say God Himself has an impossibility in His subjectivity. Right. right. And and I would, I feel kind of naive asking this, um, but I think that sort of it's it's warranted. And with Zizek, especially, you sort of need to sometimes just ask these naive questions. What do you mean by God? Like, what are we talking about when you say God? Um, because I do, I basically understand what Zizek means. It's like it's an allegory, basically. It's an allegory that reveals a, like in the history of spirit, it reveals a profound truth that the absolute, um, which will come to be the subject itself, but everything is self-divided. God himself can't even escape the contradiction. And for Zizek, the, the idea of God is often what is able to obscure the essentially uh, contradictory or uh, um, the essential negativity at the heart of being. And um, so I would ask someone like Peter Rollins, what do you mean by God? And do you just mean this? Because in that case, we can just, we'd sort of talk about uh, this from, from that perspective. But if, if you're talking about an actual God, if you truly believe in God, which from my brief um, uh, uh, listening to Peter Rollins, I don't think he does. Like when you really get down to it, you just ask, do you believe in God? Yes or no. God is this personal being um, for Christianity, the Trinity. Do you believe in that? Um, I think you would say no, um, in which case um, I, w- I would just say, um, I, well, I disagree with that. And that's more of a fundamental worldview distinction there. But yeah, so I would ask, what do you mean? Do you just mean what Zizek what Zizek's saying? And then I would sort of go into my criti- critiques or my, um, my, my understanding of what Christ was doing on the cross and um, and how we understand God and and all of this stuff and um, yeah yeah so I do I actually do want to have Peter Rollins once I have a chance to talk with him more on on my channel to talk with him um, because he seems to be really good at sort of articulating this this understanding of of death of God theology but um, I think one if if we're taking God in the non atheist sense to be literally self divided I just think that's 
sort of theologically unsound. It's metaphysically impossible, really. Um, but if we want to say that what the death of Jesus reveals is that there is no absolute that is free from contradiction. There is no um, perfect um, harmony to be found and any attempt to is simply ideological escapism in some form or another. Well, then I can we can really have a conversation about that and we can we can talk about it because I do think it's really interesting, but obviously I don't accept it as an actual or literal uh, believer. Yeah, well, uh... I'm not going to talk for Peter Rollins because I think it's much better. I, I hope you have that conversation with him. I'd love to listen to that. And in fact, um, I'll probably in the future try and reach out to him and maybe get uh, do have a have a three way way. We can we can we can talk while I'm on okay. perhaps uh, with yourself and him because I really haven't seen him talk to a lot of. I've seen him talk to many Hegelians, Lacanians, philosophers, sure, but. I don't seem engaged too much with Orthodox, in fact, at all with Orthodox Christianity. Right. Uh, I see right. him talk, talk to a lot of uh, Parson, Parson churches. Uh, it's more like in the sense of uh, what's the word? Uh, you, you know, the movement, like the progressive Christian movement in it's a very American thing. Um, I've seen him talk with, with yeah. those kind of uh, pastors and churches, but rarely with okay. more traditional Orthodoxy or even uh catholic uh christians um catholic, mm -hmm. catholic christians so uh on the on the question of uh yeah so i would say the way he described this idea of incompleteness or this void would be like he he is a, maybe a bit more of a, a tangible example he'd say salvation for instance the way he understands salvation would be uh we see we see this kind of incompleteness our split subjectivity that we feel in us in, in a very palpable way we see that god himself has this split subjectivity and in some sense we relate to god by seeing mm -hmm. that he is he is also incomplete like we are and for him that's salvation um how would i mean uh, so to a statement like that how would you respond um i think there is a lot of that can be just accepted from an orthodox christian perspective because there is a difference between incompleteness and a feeling of lack and actual sin so we say that christ did experience all of the consequences of the fall which ultimately is death because death fundamentally is division it's division from the body and soul of the body and soul and the second death that you read about in revelation the theologians have interpreted that as a um, eternal death it's the second death that is the splitting of the soul from itself so you have this and, and that's because salvation is fundamentally communion um and it, real ontological communion so sin leads to uh the fracturing of reality through this sort of paradoxical fact that sin is the reversion of the self into itself the withdrawal of the self and it's the, this very withdrawal into the self that leads to its division so the very attempt to constitute yourself as a self-isolated autonomous individual is what breaks you apart it's what fractions you because it's breaking you away from communion with others and with god now um i do think christ did experience it uh incompleteness and like he did experience the lack of reality um through dying um and and what fundamentally is dying i i think it well, to dust you are, dust you shall return. It's self-relation. It's this fall into self-relation uh, self through division. Um, and I have a video called, um, uh, what, what's it called? I think it's just called self-relation and self-division, where I sort of talk about how in an antinomic sense, both of these are are two parts of the same, same coin. Now, Christ didn't experience 
didn't sin because sin itself is not incompleteness. Sin is what leads to incompleteness. It's consequence of it. And Christ, as the God-man, he experienced as truly man, but also truly God. But in his personhood, he did experience death. He did experience the incompletion of reality voluntarily. But because he was God by, by nature, he went to the very core, we could say the very core of where the self-relation finally collapses into itself. We have death itself. We have we have hell. Christ descends into hell um, and he brings hell up uh, or he he destroys hell. He destroys death, death by death. To use a very famous Orthodox Christian term that we chant at Pascha on, on Easter. Um, Christ destroyed death by death because as a man, he was able to enter into hell to experience the full incompleteness of what it means to be a man isolated from god my god my god why have you forsaken forsaken me um but um as nonetheless retaining the ontological link between man and god in his one person in the one person of of christ um the the divine as superior to created human nature was able was able to take human nature into itself even as it had died and redeem it from this death And, and so the way we are saved so uh, that's uh, I know you, you were talking about Peter Rowland's understanding of salvation. Salvation for us does involve a confrontation with this incompleteness. We die in Christ, and we do that in baptism um, once and for all. But um, um, you repeat this through, through your life through repentance. It's through um, uh, dying to yourself. It's um, rejecting the old self, seeing the old self in its incompleteness, but truly facing it. You need to face your sin. You need to confess it. Um, and and you, you really face it, right? And once you have faced that, it, it is precisely because Christ as the God-man is there as well. God was truly there. Where you're, What you're experiencing right now, God didn't sin, but the effect of it that you're experiencing, that crushing feeling of isolation that many of us have, have had, God himself is there with you. So when you die, when you die in that way, um, when you, when you, um, and when you experience that isolation, um, you are with Christ nonetheless. And because Christ has descended to hell, he's ascended to the abyss, there is no depravity that you can achieve that would go lower than the, the, than the love of Christ. And once you recognize your isolation and the consequence of your, your sin, which is ultimately death or division, once you recognize that division for what it is, you can truly die to it. You can separate it from yourself in Christ and you're resurrected back into Christ. So that is what the death of God theology is missing. It's yes, you recognize the incompleteness, but it's precisely because God himself entered into that incompleteness that you are able to, through faith in him, be resurrected and brought out of that incompletion and into full communion with him. So the last thing I'll say on that is uh, this explains the biblical language of becoming a son of God. You become a son of God through you being united to the eternal son of God. And the way you do that is through self-sacrifice. It's opening yourself up to God, humbling yourself to God, and um, and 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 then you're able to enter into communion with Him as a son. You enter into the same mode of relation that the fa- that the Son has by nature with the Father. We, by grace, we achieve that in being united into the very body of the Son. So, I know this is very, uh, especially for people who aren't familiar with. Uh, if there's anyone watching with not familiar with the biblical language here, it seems pretty, um, it seems pretty crazy. But I do think there's a way to catch this out in a more 
uh, in a way that would be more palatable to a modern philosophical mind. Um, I, I'm not sure if I've done that yet on my Substack, but I should. But um, in any case, you die in Christ and then you're resurrected also in Christ, and that is salvation. I see. So you would agree with uh, Roland said that there is some kind of death that does take place. Oh, yeah, you have to. Paul says, you have died, so die. He says that you have died in Christ, you've been baptized in Christ, so live that death out. Live your death to the world. Live as this self-sacrificial uh, person who um, the death in Christ is a book of revelation says it's a second um or sorry it's the first resurrection because to die in christ if you die in christ you have not truly died christ this is why christ could say anyone who believes in me shall not die you have not truly died because in your very death you have made it possible to be resurrected because you are doing what christ did and being united to the the work of christ so um so yeah, there is, there has to be a confrontation with death. You have to die. Um, this is why completely sort of unrelated, but uh, Roman Catholics have the idea of the Immaculate Conception and they leave open the idea that Mary never died because for them, Mary never had fallen human nature. She never had original sin, so she didn't have to die. For us, for us, we can't believe that because the way you are united to Christ is in death because the consequences of all sin is death because to move, God is infinite, and to move even a little bit away from infinity is to create an infinite gap that only the infinite itself could um, could um, could repair, could could bring together again, and that's who Christ is as the God Man. So um, we have all died because we are all, as humans, separated, sharing the same nature as Adam. We are all separated from God. Um, in this way by original sin but also just by our own our own sins and the only way to overcome that is by confronting the re the real of your sin which is utter self-isolation and death you have to confront that but if you do that in christ then you will be resurrected because christ himself did that i see that that's well put and i would even say trey uh you know i, I have a bit of experience going to a while back i haven't been in years to like uh charismatic kind of churches and a big part of a big part of what I think that Pentecostal movement misses is they they barely talk about this this death, this alienation. Right. It's right. it's sort of like you have your life, everything is great, and then you kind of Jesus comes along and kind of helps you live your life better. You know? Yeah. And then you go to heaven. And then you and go you to heaven. Up to heaven. Right. Christ yeah. is like a self-help guru, you know, like a, a, a like a divine version of a Tony Robbins or something. And and, and right. for me, I think the most profound uh, parts of Christianity is in fact confronting this abyss to use an ancient term or the void and the incompleteness um uh mm -hmm. Trey, can you give me about 10 more minutes of your time I've got two more questions sure. so yep. cheers man I really appreciate that so I've got a question on um I want to ask you about your idea of communal ontology and I want to ask mm -hmm. you about uh what your kind of reactions to Christian existentialism is because I would say uh I wasn't I I really got turned into Christianity. Uh, I don't know if I'm a Christian, but at least I, I've deeply been enamored by Christ. Let's say it's due to Kierkegaard, uh, perhaps the quintessential Protestant, and then Paul Tillich. So I do want to talk right. about Christian essentialism. But before we get there, uh, on the topic of communal ontology, I, I think you very clearly lay out what that is uh, in your book. So look, if people want to find out what that is, read your book. <laughs> but... Uh, See, for us to find our subjectivity, we need God. 
I agree with you there. But my question would be, if we are reliant on God to find our subjectivity, is God reliant on us to find himself? Does God, or to put right. it more simply, as much as we need God, does God need us? Right. Um, well, to first answer, I guess the way I would answer that is by beginning with answering why we need God. And I think when I was talking about sort of the enclosure within imminence, um, if you want to just take this sort of, I think it can be justified philosophically, but if you want to do the leap of faith in, in believing that the subject has the, these impossibilities and that they can be overcome, right? So if you just want to accept that, then um, 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 how is it overcome? Well, it's overcome in being united to another. Now, it doesn't, ultimately, it has to be God because we are infinite. Our subjectivity is is infinite. It has infinite potential for creativity and growth. But um, so it only can ultimately be fulfilled in God. But even with other people, this sort of the same idea of communion can be fulfilled where um, you can only know yourself through a relation to another. And I think this can be demonstrated with um, uh, the example of an eyeball, which I believe I use in, in the book, where an eyeball just gazing out can never see itself because it doesn't have a faculty to. But if you can have in the analogy, a union of two eyeballs where one, the one's pers uh, uh, perspectival field can see the others, then you can have, each can have a total uh, grasp of all reality because they've now be been included in it through the reception of the knowledge of the other. So I think this really goes back down to, uh, I, I quoted quoted it already with uh paul paul saying you um you shall be uh you shall know as you are known right so you shall known as you are known just as god knows you perfectly and have this sort of transcendent perspective you will know you will both both know god and you know you will know yourself in that way um through being united to him so the reason why we need god in order to know ourselves is because um god is obviously the one who created us and uh god is the one um, he is the ultimate other that stands above us with this perspective that if we were to unite with this perspective, to join our perspective to his by grace, um, then we will know everything. We will know as we are known. Now, why doesn't this apply to God? I think the only way to escape this, and, and this is a fundamental question, it's about the necessity of creation. And the only really Christianity really brought, well, Judaism before, but when we really brought this idea of creation is contingent, it is absolutely not necessary. Aristotle says that matter is eternal. The Neoplatonists have this idea of the three hypostases, where you have God or the one, the good, who um, has their, who, um, I forget the precise language, but sort of generates these um, lower orders of being. And even the, the later, very late, I believe it's Iamblichus, even made the argument that the good has to create the, or generate the three the the other hypostases uh which are the intellect i believe the intellect and the world soul i believe if i'm getting that right he has to the one has to generate these other realities because the good is inherently self-revelatory -revel revealing itself and i think this is fundamentally true but this the reason why he's saying this i'm convinced is because they are influenced by christianity because we are the ones who say that the good is inherently self-revelatory but if we want to stay within classical uh, classical um uh, theism if we want to believe that god is this absolute ontological ground absolutely not dependent upon creation um you need to you you, you need to say that creation is not necessary god freely created the world um, so that's why we're essentially dependent upon God. But 
how, why is creation not necessary? Because I do believe with, I, I do agree with Iamblichus I that the good has to be self-revelatory. The good, I think we just understand this intuitively that love is essential to goodness. But if God is only one person, if he is unipersonal, if he's this isolated singular being, um, that as uh, Islamic philosophers will say, as um, Aristotle ultimately says, even though his God isn't even really personal, but ultimately you just have this singular monad, um, you cannot have you cannot have true love and you can't even have self-knowledge because I don't see why God would, it's a logical reality that if you don't have an other in who you know yourself, you don't truly know yourself. And this is what Zizek understands, Sartre understands this, um, many other people understand understand this in, in modern philosophy and, and, and have come to this conclusion in the, in the wake of the death of God. So the reason why God is not dependent upon us is because everything that is essential to goodness, which is ultimately all fulfilled in love, in communion, already is within God himself as the community of the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So now you don't need creation as the place where God reveals himself and reveals his power because all of his powers are already actualized in the in the Trinitarian communion. So therefore, any fourth person, any fourth, fourth hypostasis is absolutely absolutely contingent i very i highly suggest reading pavel florensky's pillar and ground of the truth specifically i believe it's the chapter on the triunity um one probably my favorite book of all time to be honest it's fantastic and uh he talks about the absolute contingency because the the relation of the three perfects everything that god or expresses everything god has to be in terms of love and all of these other attributes um creation is can be truly free because god doesn't need the world to express himself Yes, in fact, you you mentioned Pavel Florensky in a few of his a uh, few few of your mm -hmm. videos. I just ordered the book uh, a few days ago. I'm hoping to read it. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, fantastic. did you drop like a hundred dollars on that? Oh uh, no, I think I think I I no, I paid like twenty five bucks. I think I found a what? Yeah, I can. Oh, wow, I can the link with that's you. pretty I, good. I, probably, I mean, <laughs> I don't mind spending money on books, but a hundred bucks is a bit too much, mate. Yeah, yeah I got it for like seventy five, and it's only oh. gone up. Yeah. On on the um, yeah. American, yeah. Uh, link with you. I, I bought it off uh, Amazon Amazon Australia though. Um, but okay. no, actually, you, I don't even know who Pavel Florensky was uh, until I started following your work. Um, so uh, so just to just to reiterate on what you just said, my understanding is that it's in fact only the Trinitarian God that that doesn't need uh, the other to to find himself because he already has the Trinity within him. Uh, yes yes my god i just that's a really good point i didn't think of that i need to sit with that for a while <laughs> okay, okay yeah it's a very it's a very, very lofty idea i, th I, I yeah. think it's the highest idea ever contained within the minds of of humans and really it answers the fundamental pro philosophy began really with the question of the one and the many you have parmenides heraclides both representing two polar uh, opposites and it's fulfilled in the trinity where you realize that distinction is necessary you need to have multiplicity because you can't have unity without distinction you just have a well ultimately i think you just have a void like i don't think you can have any content whatsoever without relations uh todd mcgowan's really good on this in emancipation after hegel a equals a in the purely abstract sense is just an empty tautology and you can show logically that b is essential to the identity of a at least in a negative form by just saying well 
To be A means that you are not B. Therefore, B is already mediating the identity of A from within. And that's really the essence of the communal ontology, which, that, which is that identity is never self-isolated, but it's always already communal. And to not see this is to obscure the actual nature of your own being. And that's why sin is always based on a falsehood and a misapprehension of what the world truly is, which is communion. And that's because God is communion. Yeah, yeah. And just on a note, Todd McGavin, I mean, the more I read his work, I just see him being a Christian. Uh, so much of his work is, is, is mm. it's, it's got the theme of, <clears throat> sorry, uh, Christianity in it. Um, last question, Trey. Uh, I'm just, again, cognizant of the time. Um, what are your views on uh, the movement of Christian existentialism, starting with Kierkegaard and now with those like uh, Paul Tillich? Uh, just in general, what are your views on that? I haven't, I, I'm going to be honest, I haven't heard of the last person you mentioned, um, but Kierkegaard, I've read some Kierkegaard and I'm, I am uh, quite positive towards it, um, especially as very I mean, basic, but the idea of the leap of faith, I, th I think is very crucial because we need to understand that, and I do fundamentally, while I might disagree with Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard in certain respects with his critique of Hegel, I think fundamentally, um, one of the big issues with Hegel, aside from the necessity of negativity, is the um, the idea that you can transcend religious picture thinking with pure philosophy or pure rationality. That's what you get at the end of the phenomenology. Mm -hmm. And I, I do understand what he's saying, but like Christianity is a is a religion about concreteness. It's it's about reality itself in its concreteness in its particularity which in which the universe the universal is revealed right christ is the particular man in whom god is is revealed so um so um i think that uh kierkegaard's fundamental project especially especially as it's defined in opposition to hegel i would take that position because rationality can never enclose God within itself because God is truly other than it. So rationality, the very activity of pure rationality without faith obscures by its very nature, God, because God is the gift from outside. And if you're enclosing everything within yourself, you're only trying to understand things in terms of your own rationality. You can't accept the gift of the other as a gift in its otherness. You can only sub subsume it within yourself, which I think is, that's what I, I call, um, perspective of hierarchy in the book um, at, at the level of subjectivity. So I agree with Kierkegaard that you cannot rationalize faith. I don't know if I would go to the full extremes that he does, but um, I would agree with that in that there has to be a leap of faith to truly know God, not just in the philosophical sense to like believe in God philosophically. I don't even think you need a leap of faith for that. I mean, I'm testament to that because I was a Christian for months without truly believing. But ultimately, the real leap of faith is where you you accept your own limitations of your rationality and this opens up the possibility of of faith in god and uh it, for a very systematic video uh, one of the most uh, detailed i've ever done on this question in particular and how um the mode of being of doubt of, of doubt defined as i will doubt everything that is not enclosed within my own subjectivity obviously begins with descartes um this will never get to the truth by its own methods, because the very method of skeptical rationality um, encloses itself from God. So um, the video is called From Doubt to Faith. Uh, the It's like Outline of Commun Communal Ontology Part 1, something like that. And it's on my channel. 
Um, and that's where I really talk about this in detail. And the idea of the leap of faith, which we get from Kierkegaard specifically in reaction to Hegel's rationalism, I think is very crucial and very important. Yeah, I'll, I'll add those all those videos, uh, links, and even I'll transpose it onto onto the video uh, onto this podcast uh, when you. I'm editing, editing it for sure. Uh, and also with existentialism, I, I guess my uh, when I whenever I read Kierkegaard, I, I certainly love love that he always points out to this kind of absurd nature of reality. Um, so mm-hmm. like he always is certainly kind of probably started the absurdist movement uh, with like right. like Camus and all of them wrote, wrote about, um, but. I I see you're you're right. I agree with your point on on faith, all of that. But in many ways, I read Kierkegaard as this thinker who kind kind of kind of says Christianity. It's it's like this purely personal, you know, it's like mm-hmm. a, a personal leap of faith or the night of faith. Right. And he writes about you know Abraham um, and mm-hmm. Isaac. So it's like for him, in, in many ways, this is a very very. Uh, caricatured version of him uh, you know belief and faith it's even like an irrational almost an in- insanity you go through uh right and right. i i don't know if that sits or you could reconcile that with more of the systematic theology of let's say like o- orthodox christianity um and what are your reactions yeah. to that that uh let's say yeah how would you respond to that of that that the way Kierkegaard portrays Christianity as being this kind of almost absurd religion or bizarre religion right right well I think there's some truth to that I mean Kierkegaard has a great example of comedy in in scripture with um with Christ uh, the 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 whole of the Old Testament is sort of this narrative climaxing in the idea of the Messiah right the Messiah who was going to redeem Israel and he was gonna he was gonna overturn the ancient curse and all this stuff and then the, the Jewish Messiah does come and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey with 12 peasant followers, right? So that's a very funny idea. And that's a that's because it involves a subvert, subversion of expectations. So I think that elements of that is true. And, and I, I don't think absurdity is a good thing in itself or something, some philosophical ideal in itself, but it is a necessity of the fact that we live in a world that is that tends to obscure the very essence of its being which is communion so o- only a world like that could see the the messianic triumph over the nations promised in it in um in the prophets and, and uh and the torah to be um to consist of a worldly empire like i would say looking back but that was a silly idea right the idea that a worldly empire could bring world peace and and, and uh, overturn the ancient curse that's silliness but a, the God, God himself who dies for the sake of the world, uh, when you cash that out theologically, it sounds a lot more plausible. It makes a lot more sense. And that's just because the mode of thinking of the fallen world is not in accordance with the divine mode of being. So there's a lot of opportunities for ab- absurd and, and humorous image I- images there. But yeah, what you said about the the sort of the spirituality of Kierkegaard, yeah, I would, I would disagree because um, it, it's too Protestant. Fun, like spirituality has to be a communal thing there has to be yes working on yourself um yes there has to be um this sense this sense of um of a personal leap of faith it has to be done where it's just you and god like there is a part of reality that is just you and god um and that's true um but at the same time um it has to be based within a, a community and um even less of a philosophical justification for that is just a biblical one like this is what says he says that he he left the church he didn't leave a bible 
for individual people to read. He left the church. He left a community who were living the mode of being um, of him, of, of Christ. They were living the Christian mode of, be, of existence, which is fundamentally communal. Christ did have the moments where he he uh, withdrew from the crowds and he withdrew from the apostles and he had these private um, 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 dialogues with his father. But um, but this is not the sole element of it. And um, fundamentally, the the experience of God that you have personally needs to outflow into the world because what Christianity is is about is not just individual salvation of people, but as Maximus, the confessor, really um, uh, points out quite well, is it's the transfiguration of the whole cosmos, bringing all of reality back into union with God, which occurs in in the church, in the body of Christ. Yeah, and I'm assuming you'd argue that, uh, you know, being hermit or some kind of misanthrope which is a theme in some eastern religions that's that's really not a part of christianity um there's a there's a place for it um i mean there are there were hermit monastics um but i think that's a very particular very particular situation and also most monastics live in a community and most monastics um or almost i would say all nowadays don't go far away enough where they can't commune so you have to be in a community to commune and yeah. liturgy for us uh we we don't have roman catholics tend to have this uh uh they have private masses where it's just the priest um we never do that because ma uh, mass or liturgy for us is communal it involves the whole church um so so yeah the, the idea though that the purpose of being a hermit which i think is the eastern idea is that you you sort of have this dissolution of your ego through through complete withdrawal from everything. That isn't Christian. Her, uh, being a hermit for the sake of being a hermit is not Christian. But in special cases with people with certain callings, to the the need to uh, maybe just for a temporary period of time to detach from the world uh, and worldly affairs completely, um, due to a higher spiritual calling that isn't just being alone for the sake of being alone, um, that does does have a place. But it's not for it's not for the vast majority of people. Um, but there are particular examples of from the lives of of the saints. Yeah, well put, Trey. I feel like all, all of this sits well with your idea of the uh, perspectival hierarchy too, where you gotta you gotta know where to place it. It's even a point that right. uh, that Jonathan Pajot even makes it makes isn't it. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Trey, I can't thank you enough for your time. This, much like the conversation I had with the uh, Hunter, this was a very uh, soul edifying conversation. And like, I don't know what where I'm gonna go with my journey with Christ. Let's say uh, I don't even know what that means when I say something like that. But right. Yeah. Uh, I guess all yeah. I can do is keep seeking. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But but although not exactly. seeking for the sake of seeking, I think Chesterton makes this point that. You shouldn't be mm. so open-minded that your brain falls out of your head because right, right. Yes. vanity, I think. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you sort of find yourself, you're thrown into the world in a particular situation. And one thing that's important to remember is that Christianity doesn't destroy the good sense of familiarity. And I think that once you understand this, a lot of possible paths are sort of closed off, like the path of the Buddhist aesthetic like detaching from the world that is a very unfamiliar idea it doesn't in terms of our concrete lives where, where is our joys and happiness it's usually with other people right it's involved in a community of other, other people in these moments and and christianity preserves this sense of being at home if, if you find yourself straying far from what you consider to be to be home 
um, then you're probably going going the wrong the wrong direction. So that's why you want to avoid you know your brain falling out. Uh, you you want to stick within. You you obviously need to move out of your comfort zone if your comfort zone is non uh, a non Christian worldview. But um, term in terms of the fundamental understanding of reality and your place within it, and you shouldn't believe in a system that will shake all of that to the core and leave just leave you as as fearful and and totally um, um, without confidence in the reality that you exist in. So Christianity is really good at adapting to the situations that you live in because it is fundamentally just about communion with God and communion with, with others. And you can do that anywhere. Yep. Well put. Thank you, Trey. So uh, what, what plans do you have next with, with Tillowstar and all the work you're doing? I know I, I already asked you this question a bit before, but uh, let's say in the next uh, six months to give it a timeline, right. <laughs> what's in mm -hmm. your plan? Right. Um, well, so I, in September, I want to, launch the Patreon again. I sort of put it on hold a bit. So I want to dedicate more time to this. So um, obviously got to pay the bills and stuff. So um, I want to start Patreon. I'm going to get a lot more into my Substack. I really love, I love Substack. It's a great, um, it's a great platform. So I'm going to do a lot more writing for that and just basically keep doing the videos that I've been doing um, and and sort of really focusing on developing and articulating the communal ontology that's really central to this as I'm ultimately that will culminate, um, not not the end of it, but I, I do have certain plans for like putting out like basic articles and outlines and like really getting the ideas out there, which will be like ultimately will be consummated in the, the book. So the, the book, Anagogia, Modern Philosophy Through New Eyes, that is the center of everything I'm focusing on in the next six to eight months. And that will be the place where you can just read it if you want to get get everything kind of. So that's what it, everything's sort of leading up to right now. But I'm, I'm going to continue doing YouTube for the time being. If I can make a living out of it, I would love to do that because I love, I love writing and I love making videos and, and having discussions like this so yeah those are the plans and um yeah not much else but 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 thank you for having me on it was uh great you're a very good um interviewer i find that i'm i'm not as good at, at doing interviews because i tend to get lost in my own train of thoughts but you sort of just let me let me go and i i really appreciate that <laughs> oh cheers mate now i mean look you you certainly are very eloquent and and your work is superlative i mean i think I know, unfortunately, because of the world we live in, you know, we need to pay the bills and, you know, yeah. I guess yeah. Survive. Yeah. Uh, and I think suddenly yeah. if you're doing what you're doing, uh, you, you'll get there soon, given that you already uh, got a lot of influence. And and you also are playing a very unique role. In a way, I thought it was just Peter Rollins and a few others who were kind of engaging with with more modern philosophers like Zizek or Todd McAvin. Right. Uh, but then it, it's just, it's very... I don't even know what the word is really. I'm, I'm getting this again. I think the proper word is soul edifying. I'm, I'm getting this feeling that someone like mm -hmm. you, who, who's coming from a more traditional uh, Orthodox Christian perspective, still tackling these ideas and not sort of sneering at them and, and looking at viewing them right. with contempt. And I think that's really important. Right. Work, uh, yes. that doing. So yeah, mate. And as I said, please do uh, let me know when you do uh, publish the book or if I could pre-order it, sure. uh, we could probably have another conversation. Sure. Uh, but I wish you luck. Fantastic. Thanks, Ray. Well, thank you. Thank you.